This is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching from Levi Warren is part two in our annual Advent series, The Long Winter Break. Advent is a time of waiting. I know it may not feel that way much anymore these days. You know, it seems the older we get, the more harried and frenetic our lives can become, even in a general sense. Add to that the rush of the holiday season and the two months between Halloween and New Year's Eve uh, basically become this wild blur of candy and cookies and cakes, feasts and parties, family, friend, and work obligations, corn mazes and turkey trots, costume contests, Christmas tree lightings, pageants and holiday concerts by all those monstrously out of tune middle school bands. Have you guys been to those? I can say that because I was once a middle school band geek. Three years of clarinet, thank you very much. My apologies to you, mom and dad. Uh, There's the fast draining of our bank accounts and a flurry of spending. Gifts for the kids, for each other, for ourselves. It's Christmas after all, and I'll only get what I really want if I buy it myself. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, Venti ice sugar, cookie almond milk latte, please. I've never had one. And before we know it, the clock is striking midnight. There's that satisfying pop as a champagne cork goes flying. Kisses are exchanged, or so I'm told. (laughs) The year, oh man, that was a good one. The year has ended and we can breathe a sigh of relief as we shuffle off to bed, convinced that tomorrow we actually will finally keep that resolution. Christmas has come and gone, and we've done very little waiting at all. And yet, Advent is a time of waiting. Just ask your kids. I hear there's a few of you out there that have these tiny humans who live with you. There's a few of them out there. Or better yet, think back to when you were a child yourself. Think of the near torturous anticipation you experienced as Christmas seemed to inch slowly closer. The wonder and the magic of the season, the joy as the lights went up and the music began, the hope of that special gift waiting under the tree. It was all fun and amazing, but it seemed that Christmas would never actually arrive. It was in those times as children that many of us had to learn to wait well. I was not such a child. I did not typically wait well. In fact, I remember one a very specific Christmas when waiting seemed extra difficult for me. I had my eyes set on what I thought was the coolest toy ever. I don't often find myself cruising the toy aisle these days. I don't know if that's your favorite hangout at all. Uh, I'm not up on my current trends for toys, but back in the late 80s, uh, slime was all the rage. The Ninja Turtles had their Flush-O-Matic, which was, according to the box, if you guys can see that, a high-tech toilet torture trap with real ooze flush and action, retro mutagen ooze included. Uh, He-Man had to watch out for Hordak slime pit, promising to deliver primo fun, as I, uh, and as I quote, an evil pit of gruesome ooze. I don't know if you guys can see that. The Ghostbusters actually had a dude named Slimer, that lovable green ghost, one of whose toys literally spewed ectoplasm from its gaping maw. And heck, back then, it seemed like everyone on Nickelodeon was constantly being flooded with a barrage of nasty, gloopy slime, and they loved it. But all I wanted for this particular Christmas was the very humble, 
mad scientist, Oscar I. Rot. The package boasting, squeeze Oscar I. Rot, alien blood pours from his eyes. <laughs> Included was a small container of awesome looking glow in the dark alien blood compound, which was just slime. You fill up Oscar, who's this small, cheaply made monochromatic rubber monster, and squeeze him till his eyes oozed green goo. You had to love the 80s. By the way, the Mad Scientist toy line also included Sammy Sneeze, whose ooze gushed from his nose, and Billy Belcher, who basically barfed up his ooze when squeezed by the clutching hands of an excitable child. But I thought the eyes were really where it was at. Mucus and vomit were all too common for my sophisticated tastes as a child. But slime bursting from the eyes. Now that was something truly gruesome, I thought. And I felt that this Christmas was not a time to wait at all. In fact, so anxious was I to get my hands on Oscar I. Rot that I went in search of him. Now don't worry, this isn't a story about shoplifting. Last time I was up here, I told you about how I almost burned down a forest. So you might figure I'd be shoplifting. This is merely a story of me raiding the stash of Christmas gifts my mom had started piling up under the ornament-laden tree that sparkled in our living room. I optimistically assumed my wished-for monster was under the tree somewhere, and so I began poking and prodding my way through the packages. Finally, I found one that seemed a likely candidate for the treasure I sought. I grabbed it and clandestinely spirited it off to my bedroom. Now, whether this was pre-adolescent ingenuity or sheer dumb luck, I don't know. But I was able to carefully undo the tape on the festive paper that shrouded the gift I had picked. And sure enough, out came good old Oscar. There I was in possession of what I sought, but now with a new problem on my hands. How could I keep this gift untimely taken without getting caught? Not only that, but how could I enjoy my ill-gotten gain without being overwhelmed by the guilt that I felt rising up within me? I could simply rewrap the gift and place it back under the tree, but I figured that sooner or later, my mom would notice something out of place. So I hatched a new plan. Now granted, this was more than three decades ago, so I may have some of the details wrong. Uh, still, this is the way I remember it. I actually did manage to rewrap the toy and get it back under the tree, but I figured it would be wiser to find a way to unwrap it again as soon as possible before my deed was discovered. You know, who can really fathom the inner workings of a small child's mind? So I employed the help of my older sister, and together we began to appeal to the good-natured Christmas spirit of our parents. We asked simply for the choice of one gift each from under the tree, unwrapped early. Oh, how meaningful it would be to our little hearts, we exclaimed, or something like that. I don't know. Now, here's the thing. It worked. Somehow, it worked. Our parents agreed to the proposition, and I innocently picked out Oscar Irot again, careful, of course, to conceal any of the uh, out-of-place bows or wrinkled wrapping paper that might be there. And finally, he was mine. With mock surprise, but true excitement, I thanked my parents and went off to enjoy the oozy fun. Here's another thing. I never, in all the passing decades, confessed any of this to my parents. Once again, my apologies, mom and dad, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs> 
You know, Oscar Ivarot and his bucket of glowing alien blood were soon lost amongst the pantheon of my toys. The oozing slime quickly dried up. But the memory of that Christmas heist has stayed with me all these years. It reminds me that Advent is a time of waiting and that waiting is difficult. And waiting well sometimes seems downright impossible. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, tonight marks the second Sunday of Advent, a long celebrated season in the church calendar when we take time to remember how the people of God once waited through the long, dark centuries for the coming of a light. And that's centuries, mind you. They weren't simply waiting a few weeks for a gift, a cheap toy, but centuries for hope and salvation. We find it hard to wait for a season, let alone generations. They awaited a Messiah, the saving king of God's people who would set up his reign of peace and justice and light in this dark world. Advent is a time when we remember the coming of that light in the form of an infant, Jesus, the word of God made flesh who took up his dwelling among mankind, the light that no darkness could overcome. But Advent is simultaneously a time to reflect on our current waiting. Once again, the people of God find themselves crossing the long, dark centuries of human history, waiting for a coming king. And we are called to wait well. In the Gospel of Matthew, before Jesus begins his public ministry, uh, we're introduced to this unique prophetic figure, a man named John, who's been called to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming of the long-awaited Messiah. And John is out in the Judean wilderness. He's baptizing people in the Jordan River. Uh, he's dressed in weird clothes, camel hide, eating bugs. And he's crying out, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And then in Matthew 3, uh, verses 8 through 11, he says something I want us to take a closer look at tonight. Does that sound okay to you guys? You still with me? Yeah. All right, great. Would you stand with me as a gesture of reverence as we read from the inspired and authoritative word of God? Let's look at Matthew 3, verses 8 through 11 together. John the Baptist says, Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. These words are inspired by God. Thanks. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. So here's the deal. I get it. At first glance, this may not seem like your typical Christmassy text. There's no shepherds, no angels, there's no donkey or innkeeper, no magi from the east or bright and shining star. But if we pause to meditate on this passage, I think we'll see that it bears huge significance for how we experience Advent. In these verses, we discover, uh, discover a depth of theological wealth. There's a call to productively wait well. There's a warning about the dangers of what will happen to us if we do not wait well. And perhaps most importantly, insight into the very means by which we can actually wait well. 
You know, that first point may sound like somewhat of a paradox. We are called to productively wait, but here's what I mean. There's no doubt that we are eagerly awaiting the return of Jesus when he will come to renew all things. As the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. But while we have been called to wait patiently, we have not been called to wait in passiveness and idleness. This is not a simple run out the clock scenario. No, remember that John said we are to bear fruit. And thinking of John's words, I am also reminded of the many parables that Jesus told, a number of which are all about servants being entrusted with the task of taking what their departing master has given them and utilizing it to increase their master's possessions. They were called to produce something as they awaited the return of their tarrying master. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells one such parable where three servants are each given bags of gold. The first servant gets five bags of gold, the second gets two, and the last servant gets one. The first two servants each take their respective bags of gold, and we're told that they put them to work whatever that means in the first century. Somehow they take the resources entrusted to them and they invest them. They use them so that they each double the amount of gold that they started with. The first servant ends with 10 bags of gold and the second servant with four. The third and final servant, however, in fear and laziness goes and buries the gold that he received. He doesn't even bother to deposit it in the bank so as to receive interest on it. Rather, he just completely hides it away. And Jesus says that when the master returns, the first two servants who were faithful with what they had been given and produced some sort of fruit from their activity will be rewarded. They will be put in charge of many things and invited to share in the master's own happiness. The third servant, however, will be left with nothing and sent out into the darkness where, as Jesus says, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, regardless of what that means exactly, in terms of the literal consequences this servant experiences for his disobedience, remember this is a parable that Jesus is telling, I think we can all agree that it does not sound good. And remember what John the Baptist just said. He said to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, why? Because the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Whether it's being cast into the outer dark, which is soundtracked by weeping and the gnashing of teeth, or it's like being a tree chopped down and totally destroyed in a blaze of flames, there are consequences for those who reject the call of Jesus to repent and produce fruit. Or in other words, those who reject the call of Jesus to productively wait well until the master returns. Do y'all want to hear an unpopular statement? Thanks, Lexi. Jesus is the Messiah who saves and judges. 
if for some reason I was looking to gain popularity, aside from probably having to adjust a number of other things about myself, I would need to cut that statement in half. Jesus is the Messiah who saves. Now that is 100% true, and it's beautiful and profound. Jesus is the Messiah who saves. It's just not the complete picture. But we don't like that whole judgy bit. It's so unloving, we argue. It makes us feel bad, so we leave it off. Give us the former, Jesus. You can keep the latter. But imagine this scenario. Say I had a friend who, for any number of reasons, decided that they no longer cared to be in a relationship with me. It's hard to picture. I'll give you a second, since I'm such a likable guy. But maybe it's not even because of any specific action I've done. Uh, We no longer believe the same things or share the same values, and they choose to walk away. Now, I still love them, I care about them, and want to pursue a friendship with them, so I reach out every once in a while. Now, if I'm consistently met with rejection after rejection, but obliviously keep pursuing, like I just really can't take a hint, pretty soon that rejection may turn into downright hostility from them. Because I cannot, in actual love, force my friendship upon anybody. At some point, I must make a judgment call. This person rejects my friendship. I cannot in love coerce relationship with them, so I must release them to their own choices. Even if it causes me pain and sorrow, even if I think my friendship would do them good. Now to be clear, I am not meeting their hostility with hostility. I'm simply respecting their ability to make an autonomous choice and allowing them to act in accordance with their free will. In fact, I would even be here ready and waiting for them to return to the friendship if they should choose to do so. Nothing could make me happier. But maybe at some point it becomes too late for them to make that decision. And if someone else came to me and asked, does this person love you? Are you in relationship with them? I would rightly judge no. Jesus told another parable in Matthew 25 about 10 young women who were awaiting the arrival of a slow coming bridegroom so that they could go into the celebration of a great wedding banquet. And while each of the 10 women had a lamp that would light up the descending night, illuminate the gathering darkness, only five of the women wisely brought along oil. The other five, Jesus said, were foolish for they brought no oil to fuel their lamps. And all of the 10 women waited so long for the coming bridegroom that they eventually became drowsy and fell asleep. Then at midnight, the cry rang out. Here comes the bridegroom. It's time for the celebration. Come out to meet him so that you can be escorted into the great wedding banquet. They all awoke and the five wise women who had brought along oil were understandably excited. The time had finally come, so they trimmed their lamps in preparation. But the five foolish women were in distress. Please, they begged the other women, give us some oil uh, so that we can light our lamps too. But the five wise women responded, we're sorry, but if we give our oil away, there, there may not be enough to go around. Go off into town and see if you can buy some oil for yourselves. So off the five foolish women went. Uh, But while they were gone, the bridegroom arrived and the banquet began. The five women who had been prepared entered the feast and the doors were shut behind them. 
Then Jesus finishes off the parable by saying this. Later, the others also came. And that's the five foolish women. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But the bridegroom replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Let those words sink in for a minute. I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus continues, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. We must wait well because we don't know the day or the hour that Jesus, the master and the bridegroom, will return to begin that great marriage banquet of the Lamb. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says these sobering words about waiting well. He says, be careful or your hearts will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap. For it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Jesus is the Messiah who saves, yes. But he is also the Messiah who judges. When the time comes, he respects the decision of those who have chosen to reject his love and declares this sad truth. I don't know you. You wouldn't let me know you. You refused to be known. Those words of John the Baptist that we read earlier call us to repent and bear fruit so that we might live well as we await the second coming of Jesus. But how? What does it actually look like for us to produce fruit in keeping with repentance? And how are we even supposed to accomplish that? Well, John clues us in uh, on that too. Once again, Matthew 3, verse 11. I baptize you with water for repentance, John says. But after me comes one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Maybe you've been thinking the whole time I've been up here talking. Levi, you're painting such a gloomy picture of waiting. Like we're just out alone in the darkness. Jesus is gone, nowhere to be seen. The light has left us and we can do nothing but stumble about in a blind panic. And maybe if you're being honest, you actually feel like that's the case sometimes for yourself. Sometimes the darkness and evil of this world feels so overwhelming that we can't help but cry out with the psalmist, how long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me Look on me and answer me, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Sometimes we feel this so deeply within our souls. But please hear me on this. Though we wait in the darkness of this world, we do not wait without hope. And we certainly do not wait alone. For those who submit to the lordship of King Jesus, we are, as John says, baptized with the Holy Spirit. That means the life 
life-giving, loving, all-powerful, personal presence of King Jesus himself comes upon us and dwells within us. Jesus had a lot to say about this himself. Before his ascension, he promised his disciples that he would somehow still be with them always to the very end of the age. During his time with them, he told them, I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. He is the Holy Spirit who leads into all truth. But you know him because he lives with you now and later will be in you. No, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you, Jesus says. All who love me will do what I say. My father will love them. And listen to this. We will come and make our home with each of them. We are never alone in the darkness. The Father and the Son, through the power of the Spirit, dwell within us. The creator God of the whole universe, the one true light of the world, is with us and is transforming us to be his children of light. We are called out of darkness and into the wonderful light, as Peter wrote. And as Paul said, you are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Now, if you've been around Van City for more than about five minutes, you've likely heard someone up here at some point talk about abiding in the vine of Christ or practicing the presence of God or apprenticing after Jesus by means of spiritual disciplines and emotional health principles. You see, we hold firmly to this idea that when we submit ourselves to the teachings of King Jesus and so to the Spirit, that we are being transformed into the image of Jesus with ever increasing glory. We call it sanctification or spiritual formation or being with Jesus, becoming like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did. John the Baptist teaching and Jesus' parables call us to bear fruit, to produce something. But it's only in partnership with the spirit of Jesus that this fruit can be produced in us. You know, I used to be so worried about whether I was producing the right thing and whether I was producing enough of it, whatever it was. I mean, what was I supposed to be producing? I thought maybe there was some tally God kept, you know, some cosmic score sheet tracking how many converts I had won for Christ or how many good deeds I had accomplished. And to be clear, we are definitely called to make disciples and to be rich in good deeds done in humility and wisdom that point others to the glory of God. But I love what Paul says in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is a character and a way of life that is being transformed to look like Jesus more and more each day. Advent is a time of waiting, a time in which we are called to productively wait well, a time in which we are to repent of our complicity in the dark state of this world and to rely on the spirit of King Jesus to transform us into people of light that we might bear his fruit, love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And though we wait through the long, dark centuries of human history, we wait as brothers and sisters in the family of God. 
as children of light, filled and empowered by the very presence of King Jesus himself. So we say, thank you, Lord, that we do not wait alone. We eagerly look toward the day when you will come again to renew all things. And we join in with all the saints who have gone before us in saying, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to Van City Church. There are more teachings and available resources from Van City at vancity.church. You can support Van City financially by visiting vancity.church/giving.